Hello, I'm Ted Hodgkinson, and today I'm delighted to be joined by George Saunders. One of the finest, funniest writers of his generation, he writes stories that pulse with outsized heart, crackle with ad speak, and eke out the human story from the lives of theme park workers and the subject of strange drug tests that enhance libido and eloquence. His books include Civil War Land in Bad Decline, In Persuasion Nation, Pastoralia, and most recently, The Tenth of December. He has also published a book of essays, The Brain Dead Megaphone. I began by asking him whether he wanted to increasingly allow his characters access to goodness, as with the opening story from the new collection, Victory Lap, which has an unexpectedly happy ending. Part of it, you know, it, it's funny because these things are partly uh, sort of moral, ethical things, changes or, or preferences on my part as a person, and partly aesthetically driven. So uh, on that story, you know, you get to a certain place in it where you think, oh, God, this, you know, I've sort of put in place these things that are not good. Uh, I don't really want to go there. You know, I don't really want this thing to have the most negative outcome. Um, but you're sort of honor-bound to respect the energy of the story. So if you suddenly introduce some crazy miracle, then you, you've defaulted. So, so on that story, part of it was to say, oh God, I, if I could take this, you know, uh, this thing away from disaster, I'd like to, but I also will concede that if it has to go there, it does. And then I started looking at my own prior work and also some sort of stories in which I, I, I stories in the same lineage. So for example, um, uh, Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find. Oh, is that, yeah, that, that one. And then also, uh, George Carlos had a story called Where Are You Going, Where Have You Been? Both sort mm. of murderous seduction type things. So I, I kind of thought, well, maybe aesthetically I have to do something different just so I don't repeat those stories and also rep- repeat certain dark swerves in my own work. So on that one in particular, I, I actually worked pretty hard to come up with a way in which I could avert the disaster. Mm. Uh, and so, th- so aesthetically, I was just trying not to repeat myself, basically, not, you know, trying to do trying to take the most interesting sort of luminous uh, energetic route through the material that's that's the priority wherever mm-hmm. it takes you but then having said that I, I'm also at a place in my life where you know the kind of the kind of fiction that only serves to remind you that life sometimes sucks I, I'm not as interested in it I think that's an important thing to remember to remember that it sometimes sucks for certain people mm-hmm. and it might be you that's important mm-hmm. but but the kind of it got feeling to me that to keep saying that over and over again was to neglect another thing that I that maybe with age I'm increasingly aware of, which is it doesn't always suck. Sometimes it's wonderful, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and I think those stories are harder to tell. I, you know, happiness writes white and all that kind of thing. But in this book, there was just a, you know, maybe at six or seven points in the writing of it, I, I had to work a little harder to say, well, the easy solution is catastrophe. What's the hard solution, you know? And then spend a little time uh, working through that. Hmm. I'm not sure if that answers the question. It does, yeah. yeah. And actually, it kind of leads on to something else I wanted to ask, which is that um, I think you, you write beautifully within con- certain constraints that you, maybe you give yourself. And maybe that's one of the ways that you, you can get at states like happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In the Semplica Girls, um, there's this wonderful truncated um, diary sort of um, register to it. And um, one of the sections that struck me uh, is, is when the character who... Um, who is in a lot of debt, limited means, family he's trying to support, and he's sort of weighed down by a kind of um, sadness. Um, and yet, uh, they have this kind of windfall with a with a uh, a lottery win. It's not it's not millions, but it's a lot, you know. And um, there's this interesting moment in the diary which I I picked out where he says, um, "I'm so happy." Note to future generations: happiness possible, and when happy, so much better than opposite, i.e., sad. Hopefully, you know. I knew but forgot. Got used to being slightly sad. Slightly sad due to stress, due to, due to worry, vis-a-vis limitations. But now, no. Now happy. That's the dream, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, and it's, it's so unlike... I can't really think of another mm. um, passage like that in, in, in anything. Mm. And do you find yourself entering into that territory and think... Oh my God! I'm in this territory. I've been told I'm not allowed. You know, happiness rights white. Yeah, kind of. But you know, what what started to grate on me more as I got older was to have 
uh, wide swaths of my life that I wasn't representing at all. I'm, I always represent things in a little sort of cartoonish, uh, truncated way, but but I it just became, you know the feeling I think any artist feels is where life is over here, but you're not writing from that place. You're writing somewhere else. And it becomes irritating, I think. You know, I think when a young writer first finds his or her own voice, it's often a case of, of getting irritated with the falsification that's required to imitate your masters. You know, you right. love Hemingway, so you imitate Hemingway. And after a while, you go, God, you know, I'm living a life that Hemingway couldn't do. He wouldn't, he wouldn't touch it, or he couldn't do it. Why am I not using my actual material? So I think, likewise, you know, in, in my life, when I was mostly happy, you know, we, we had yeah. kids, and we were very lucky with them, and... and so it's, it just started to feel false that I wasn't representing that at all, you know. So when a moment like that comes, I kind of just feel like, well, actually, what I really feel like is this prose any good? Mm. That that's to me, you know, it's funny in interviews. The one of the hardest things for me is that we, after the fact, once we've read something or written something, we tend to think about it conceptually or thematically, and that's natural. But in the actual doing of it, it's a very different sort of. Mm you know, process, which for me is to try to put all thematic ideas away, because I'm not, I'm a sort of a bear of little brain when it comes to the thematics, but what I, where I find my attention going is to the line-by-line stuff. Sometimes, is it funny, is it edgy, is it fast, is it kind of got that certain something that prose can have, and mysteriously, if I, I found it, if I concentrate on that, and it's a very sort of complicated and personal set of things I'm trying to do, mm. then all the other stuff, it's almost like these uh, you know thematics and politics and all that they're like these wild forest animals that will that will come out very quietly if you don't look at them you know <laughs> so if I keep my eye on the on the prose by prose progress certain you know looking to make the sentences rhythmically interesting but also true in a certain way uh, this set then before long I'm like, oh yeah this story oh this story does have politics mm-hmm. this story does have theme but even then say don't think about it you know don't spook them and don't spook mm-hmm. those animals. So in a lot of these cases, I'm really just, um, you get on that riff like that, and you, and you, there's a little blinker in my head that says, true? I'm like, yeah, fine, yeah, sure, true enough, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, pros, pros making you happy? Pretty good, you know. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes pretty good, but, and then you go in and you start editing. So for me, it, it's hard to talk about because so much of it is just split-second intuitive decisions. And then also in my editing process made about hundreds of thousands of times because I just uh, edit iteratively over and over the same passages until they're where I want them to be, you know. Mm. Mm. But it's really interesting because looking back at the other earlier stories, there is there is a kind of opening up in terms of the kinds of characters that are entering into them. I mean, particularly in the first collection, even though there are still, in that first collection, there's still love stories and there are still mm. kind of, um, you know, good guys and mm. people trying to, um, striving and um, trying to make ends meet in difficult situations. They're not... Um, allowed out of that vortex right yeah. right it's interesting though that you mentioned that you want to tr- sort of close the gap in a way between your life and your stories because um there is i mean you may, i think that it's i'm right in saying that i'm not sure how much of these stories are sort of one-to-one life but some of them seem to be inspired by things that have happened to you like simple girl seems to have come out of a dream yeah yeah well you know it's funny as you said that i was thinking about that first book and actually i had I was doing exactly the same thing there, which was, uh, this was, I was maybe 30-ish, 33 or something like that, and we, our kids were little, and I was working at a corporate place that was kind of not bringing out the best in me, you know, and, mm-hmm. but one of the motivations for that Civil Willing book was that I, I was sick of not writing my life, and mm-hmm. my life at that point was really not, it wasn't a, I mean, it wasn't the gulag, you know, but no. compared to what I wanted and what I thought I just, I should be able to bring home to my family, I was falling short, mm-hmm. and, um, but even to continue to fall short, I had to kind of keep coming in and, and sort of, you know, uh, doing pretty pretty boring work that was also difficult, which is a deadly combination. So so I think at the time, I would, and at the time before that, I was writing a lot of Hemingway S stories set in Asia where I lived for a while. And again, the feeling was, why are you falsifying? Why, why is none of your actual angst and the actual substance of your days, why is that not in your work? Mm-hmm. And then to do that, turns out, I had to make these kind of weird theme park kind of stories. But So I think that, that maybe is the kind of perennial challenge is to say, yeah, you did that book last, and, and people talked about it a certain way. Has your life changed since then? You know, it's, in other words, it's kind of a gut feeling. What, what are you omitting? Uh, what's urgent? 
that you're that you're somehow artificially holding out and that might be I mean I guess that's kind of the goal and for me it manifests as this phenomenon that in any given time there's usually one mode of writing that interests me like I have a project that I'm working on at home and right now no other way of writing interests me except that one I'm almost like in a trap until I can write through that hmm. so I think yeah I don't know that's your yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, it, as you're talking, it sort of reminds me of the conundrum that I think a lot of musicians face when they write about, like, you know, in Springsteen in the early days, writing about a particular kind of life and then his life changes, and he's sort of yeah. still writing that life. But, right, right. You know. Yeah, and the trick, I guess the trick would be, you know, your hope would be your life wouldn't change too much. And, I, mm. and I'm, you know, it's funny, this book sold in the States, and so uh, it was received differently than any of my, my other ones. And I got a little tiny baby glimpse into... Uh, this kind of, I guess it's an American thing, but probably also just a Western thing that in our arts, you, you get to a certain point and then you're allowed to go up into this kind of God garden, you know, mm. where, where your life is not common and right. you only meet cool people and go to cool places, which is would be death for a literary artist. I mean, you know, yeah. I, so I, I, I just peeked over the edge of that and like, oh my God, I <laughs> because you, you know, like, what are you going to write about, you know, your book tour? I mean, that's not exactly Red Hot stuff, you know, no. so... So you should. So I guess in some ways. Sarah Hale Wise story. Yeah, that's right. One time I was really drunk, but 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 just to, to. I mean, you probably could. You could. One could, I suppose. But but uh, I think you have to kind of hope maybe that life. I mean, you know, this is my seventh book, and all of them were received pretty well. But none of them put me up. None none disrupted my life really in any meaningful way. You know, you, mm. you, if you went to do a reading, you might be recognized there. You know, as you were reading, and then afterwards, I said, and that was such a blessing. You know, to have uh, what 15, 17 years of just being kind of a regular person who wrote because then you had the basic the, basically the, the trajectory of a real American life as opposed to a you know sort of a, right, a public right. life which is yeah. a blessing um, and it, I think one of the stories that does connect quite closely with some of the earlier ones is Escape from Spiderhead um, and one of the things that's interesting about that is that it's um, I suppose you could say it's a sort of series of drug trials that um and some of the drugs induce emotional states that are pretty much akin to the real thing. So, mm -hmm. you know, people take verbal ace and they think that they're madly in love and, you know, there's a lot of shagging going on right. in these stories. And then afterwards there's a sort of remorse and shame and, and so on. Um, this story, I mean, obviously this is, this is one of the more fantastical in the collection. Mm -hmm. It's one of the ones that takes more of a sort of metaphorical leap. But it also seemed like one of the stories that was deeply allegorical about the effects of capitalism, the effects of consumerism, the way that we're often media taught into having certain appetites and then we satiate them, you know, and the way that linguistically the sort of advertising that we're surrounded by all the time mimics the sort of language of love, the language of love letters and so on. So, I mean, sort of that's something that we're all exposed to, you know, whether we're in that, um, whether your life has changed or not. Yeah. And I wonder, um, I know that, the, that that's a big sort of beast of a theme I'm, I'm asking you about, but um, is that something that, that sort of bothers you? Is it something you're conscious of, or was the story just um, something that grew more organically? And it, it usually, it's kind, of, it's kind of both, actually. Mm. I mean, you, you know, you, it, again, for me, it has to start with fun, like some kind of fun, mm. or also some kind of discontent. Like in that story, I remember starting... I don't remember the exact genesis, but I remember writing the first couple of paragraphs, and I was kind of using a kind of a default minimalist language that I kind of just naturally go into, which is actually somewhat lower than my real diction, you know, mm -hmm. um, kind of a uh, in, from the, being in the Hemingway Carver lineage, just kind of a natural thing to sort of start it. And I just felt a little restless, like, oh, here we go again, you know. Mm. Uh, again, the, I'm sort of falsifying a bit, you know. I'm, mm. I'm writing lower than I can think. Mm-hmm. So I thought, ah, how can I, I would love to just write uh, really at the top of my register, you know, mm. and and then somehow I'd been thinking a little bit about, um, you know, when, when I was a kid I had a, a real bad flu, a high fever, and mm. I was hallucinating a little bit. And ever since then I thought, that's weird that you're not your mind. Your mind is actually, I mean, you have thoughts and experiences and, and feelings and for a couple of minutes or for a couple hours, you're somebody else. Mm. I remember that during that time, everything seemed kind of disgusting and it made me angry, you know, this, this flu. And then when it went away, there I was again, me, mm. you know. So that had always been something I'd, I thought about and then later thought, of, I'd like to try to write about that, you know. Uh, but anyway, sitting at the desk, I thought, I want to write a higher addiction. I'll just go ahead. And then you think, well, why? And you sort of say, well, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out later. So mm. later, maybe five minutes later, I went, oh, it's a drug. 
Oh, he said, oh, it's a drug. So what kind of drug? Well, what, what, what's the difference between the two pro styles? One is really articulate and one isn't. Okay, it's a drug that makes you talk better. <laughs> okay, what, do you, what should we call it? Verba, verba, verba loose, verba loose. And then there you go. So then, and now that's not philosophical at all, except it's fun. Mm. And then once you start that, now, you know, immediately you've made a world mm. in which consciousness can be altered with more precision than we can do it. That has political and moral overtones. And then you're kind of off to the races. And all the things you're talking about, it's a very astute reading of that story. I would argue that I, I can't get to those things by trying to get to those things. Mm. But by making a really enjoyable, vivid surface, again, mysteriously, that stuff does happen. And I, there were times in my life when I was really trying to make certain thematic points or, or uh, comment on certain things, and I never did a bit of it because it was so boring you know, it was so preconceived and so prehandled that no reasonable reader would tolerate it. You know, so it's kind of that idea of no, no surprise for the reader, writer, no surprise for the reader. You know, uh, but I, I found that really, uh, it's if I have one working principle, it's that one, which is try to know as little as possible at the outset. Trust, um, maybe I trusted my verbal gift a little bit, but mm. mostly trust entertainment. T- trust um, that your first responsibility is to get the reader leaning into you mm. now other things might happen after that but if that doesn't happen then you're done you know so uh yeah that's i mean it's kind of, it's not much of a principle but it's no kind of it's great got, you know? i mean that there's there's so much fun in the story i mean that's that's a, that's it's abundant and one of the things i think that makes these stories um feel like perhaps these ideas aren't sort of consciously thought or like you know packaged into the story um and I think that the reason that, that, that stories themselves are so um, powerful, can be so powerful, is because they're not, you know, mm. but because they, they come through the story naturally, through the language. that. And sometimes also they're imperfectly proved. You know, they're, they're, mm. they're like, I always think of a tent with one corner flapping, you know, like you <laughs> might, the story might be seeming to say, A, you know, I love the model of um, story where there's sort of like two walls leaning against each other, just supporting each other, just barely, you know, so you have mm. an idea and a counter idea and the story that doesn't say doesn't come down on one side or the other but puts them both in play and lets them kind of resonate there that that would be for me the 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 aesthetic ideal you know that uh, like Chekhov said a story doesn't have to solve problems just has to formulate them correctly mm-hmm. so in, in a way your, your job is to kind of turn up the soil a little bit in, mm-hmm. in the story and uh, let the questions resonate at, at their sort of maximum validity level. You know? Right. So you don't really take the easy discount of any idea. Let them all come up and just let them kind of, you know. And one of, one of the reasons I think a lot of them are so compelling is that you um, you, you allow us into that space where um, a character has sort of, um, you've shown us the difference between the way a character thinks they are in the world and the way that they sort of actually are, you know. Right. And I mean, one of my favorite funniest stories, I think, um, is the Barber's Unhappiness. It's the only story that I've like, I've actually sprained several muscles in my in my chest from, while reading. So I think so. I mean, it's 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 about a guy who goes on a he's a barber and he goes on a speed awareness program. Anyone who hasn't read it, um, and he has a series a sort of. I suppose a whole relationship really in his mind with with a girl yeah. who he meets on the program who's called Miss Hacienda yeah. and he's so annoyed with her because the relationship starts and ends in his head and then when she finally speaks to him you know she's and he's not necessarily it's not really remotely on the cards you know right. the, the relationship and it's deeply sad but it's also incredibly funny yeah. um, and I th- there are several points in the stories in the new collection where you get this this slight disconnect mm-hmm. that's sh- showing the sort of level of denial and um, there's a uh, um, a really in- wonderful bit in uh, the Semplica Girls where um, a character is giving eulogy for, for their um, for their brother Todd who and there's there's well-meaning and earnest sort of rhetoric being used but ultimately you kind of know that he was the older brother was a bully and that there was a kind of difficult relationship there yeah. and is that one of the things that a, a story can do better than I think it, yeah. I, to me, and to me, that's the essential definition of comedy. You know, is a guy mm. is thinking about being the king of the world and he falls down. You know, or mm. or, or some shit comes down from above. I mean, mm. that, and I and I, I think the reason I 
I love that motor because I do it. I see myself doing it all the time. You know, like these glorious fantasies. And then I go, "You're kind of a balding fifty-year-old." What are you? And, and and I think that's really a cool. I mean, it's a it's a great. It's, I mean, humility, humor. It's the yeah. it's the idea that um, everybody in the world is doing. It. Everyone in the world is walking along in their humble state, both both imagining imagining themselves both better and worse than they actually are. And that mm. that is very funny to me. And I have a lot a lot of fun. And with this kind of. Um, I've been messing around with this thing that I think of as third-person ventriloquist, where you kind of, as quickly as you can, you go into the, the character's diction and speech patterns and such. And it makes really fun comic moments when you can sort of technically juxtapose what the person's thinking with what he or she is doing or someone else is thinking of, about it. And it's right. very rich. And I think there's something deeply true in it, you know, uh, mm. kind of lovely, too, that, that a person would be imagining a better life for himself or and... and uh, uh, or, or you know, even just having a in that barber story, there's one bit where he's imagining, he's in a room and he's thinking, if aliens came in, and and killed everyone, all the men but me, and I got to pick out my girlfriend, you know, like that kind of yeah. thing, which I think is, you know, <laughs> I, I hope everyone thinks like that. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> I like the bit where he's sitting there watching TV with his mother, and he just worries that someone's going to look in and wonder why he married such a right. lady. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> But but that thing you know that that kind of humor I think it's very, it's a very fine line because if you if you thought that only other people did that then you might be a little cruel but but mm. I, for me that always starts with my own uh, it's always a forty or maybe a ten percent exaggeration of something some somewhere my mind has has swerved into you know yeah so then it you know I'm kind of trying to basically forgive myself or you know or or fess up in, in that way so. Yeah, no, it never feels cruel at all. I mean, that's that's one of the things that's actually quite sweet about the barber is that when Miss Hacienda is sort of um, in his mind, she discovers that he has, I think he has six toes. Yeah. And he, and he thinks that perhaps she won't um, accept this. And right, then he right. gets very irate and frustrated with her for, for not accepting this and that, you know, he's going to just stick it out with his mum. And right. <laughs> when he says... <laughs> He has a milk stool. I think that's it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the milk yeah. stool. But anyway, um, uh, <laughs> it's very, it's very good. Um, but you know, I mean, the thing, the thing, what I find, um, you, earlier you said, is this what literature can do that nothing else can do? Mm. And, and what I love about writing is that the um, it makes a basic assumption, mm. which is that this person over here, who maybe is a different race, gender, age, maybe he's dead, you know, now, mm. that person can make certain assumptions. And do this sort of structural, stylistic work, and actually penetrate. I mean, nail you, mm. and uh, who, who's completely different than he is in, in a different time, in a different situation, totally different life, can reach across time, and zing you in the head, and so certain uh, neuron things happen, mm. and suddenly you might, you know, you might smell the smell that he wanted you to smell, or more importantly, you might feel uh, something like he felt, or even better. You're you're reassured that someone else has felt what you felt, someone across mm. time, and that that's really powerful. Um, sort of, I guess it's moral ethical work, right. and it uh, it's magical, you know, because what it really says is that there isn't actually a big difference between two people. There there's a communication that goes. It's it's it doesn't matter about time. It doesn't matter about space. It basically just matters. I think that our brain our brain uh, structure is basically the same. Mm. So if someone says fresh cut grass on a summer day. And you and it hits you the right way. You go, oh yeah, you know. So I, I think that's really hope, a hopeful thing. And and it means now, and in some ways, that's just it means that. Uh, well, I guess it means what we do is valid. But it, but it, it's sort of a way that humor gets in. It's a way that any kind of power gets in. Is that that little transfer? I think. But it's interesting you mentioned people in another time because um, one of the things that one of the refrains in the Centrica Girls is um, addressing future generations. Mm. You know, yeah. and and the way that. Uh, I, I think there's this, this wonderful passage when um, the narrator or the diary keeper is um, trying to sort of extend himself or trying to sort of say the things that he wants to do and those things include sort of, you know, some sort of a slightly kind of um, uh, things that you might reach for to sort of self-improve, so like, you know, bird-watching and looking at the constellations and looking at the stars. But um, that's, I mean, that's sort of what you're talking about, isn't it? It's that... Um, Linguistically, he's sort of sending a, a little capsule to another time right. and saying we're we're connected. Yeah, and he's doing it. I mean, at least in that story, he's doing it out of a kind of love for. He loves his life. He feels a little uh, reduced by it, 
So mm. it, uh, I always imagine that just a, uh, right before we went to bed at night, he just, oh, another day gone by. Mm. And, he, and so in his way, he's going to, uh, I think maybe at some level, he thinks the diary will be found and published someday or something. So in, in his little way, he's just, um, but you know, again, that was me. I mean, I, when I was working that corporate job, I, I just, uh, I was aware of how precious those years were. Our kids were little, and I was aware of how, I mean, I kind of had the awareness that someday when I'm old, I'll look back at this, and these would be the golden, you know, mm. golden times. And yet, what I was doing mostly was standing in a photocopier for eight or nine hours. Uh, uh, the kids were home; I didn't see them, and so that feeling of going home at night and getting a couple minutes with them, and then like, then it was they were in bed, and then my wife was going to bed. And I'm like, God, I haven't done a thing today. I haven't mm. um, expended any joyful energy at all, you know. Mm. And that was kind of a panic, a panic-inducing thing. So I think he has a lot of that going on, and for him, it, it means making these big promises about what he'll do later and making resolutions to be a better father. So I love, I really love that guy, and I, I found him very, he's me, really, I mean, with just a little, little yeah. tweak in the reality. The one, one of the parts I found uh, the most endearing was when he, he gets, he wins the lottery, and um, he's, he's driven to get the ticket, mm-hmm. and he, he runs halfway home with the ticket, and then he realizes he's left the car at the uh, lottery place, and then he just thinks, screw it, I'm just going to carry on and runs right. away home, and his wife is like, where's the car? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I'm sure that came from something in life. That that was a story where I could really use day to day life, at, you know, in different. Usually a little exaggerated, but you know, you could find. And and you know, I I, I loved. Um, I mean, as somebody when I was younger, I first of all, I'm a control freak to this day. But when I was younger, I had that kind of young dude thing where you thought, first of all, I'm never going to be compromised. I'm never going to be anything but glamorous. I'm never taking a stupid job. I'm, you know, and one by one, those things fell away. And I found that there was a certain kind of power in it. You know, like mm-hmm. that, that you find yourself working the job you always swore you wouldn't work well there you are you know mm. or um I, I was doing some writing for gq these travel pieces and a couple of them just really got into stupid kind of embarrassing situations and even in the middle of them thinking well you're not going to write this oh yes you are oh yeah this is where the, <laughs> the you know so that it's kind of an amazingly powerful thing to to um be in touch with one's, one's own humiliation a little bit. So I can look back at those years and find so many wonderful comic things that I was the center of. And at the time, it seemed a little tragic, but now it seems kind of, kind of rich. <laughs> it's like that Chaplin thing of, you know, life is tragedy and close-up, but comedy and long shot. Kind yeah, of that's right. <laughs> but um, I want to ask you a little bit about compression, because you, when you're talking about coming home from an eight-hour day and not having any time, um, your, your stories are all pretty much um, beautifully compressed. I mean, the one in here that I think is particularly so is Styx, um, which is really a novel, I think, in a page. Um, and it's, it's just a um, really powerful family um, story and incredibly um, seasonal. And there's a sort of sense of time passing. There's a, a, a cruciform pole out in the yard and the, the, the father is, it's sort of his... Um, his piece of theatre, really, mm. his party piece that he decorates with different... Um, at Halloween, it's a, a um, pumpkin head thing, and then at Christmas, it says, you know, so on. Mm. And I just wonder if compression... Is that, is that also saying, like, I'm not going to... I'm going to honour the reader's, you know, compressed life as well, mm. and I'm going to... Is that something that grew out of your own um, life and it being tight for time and, and, and like, or is it something that you just aspire to and sort of naturally I, I think it, I mean the first the Civil War I wrote at work literally and so there was always mm. uh, a little and I would write it at, at, at the same desk where I would the same computer where I would do my other work so there was a little bit of that you know that, mm. or, or maybe like you knew you weren't going to have three hours you maybe yeah. had a seven eight minute twenty minute swath so and also just in terms of uh, you know I was thirty something and we had our kids and it was like come on you have to really not Mm. indulge yourself you have to really go for whatever you think is intense so that kind of got in there and once it got in there even in you know if you if you blunder onto a three or four sentence uh paragraph that's really compressed for you it it makes you kind of addicted to it you know once Mm. you hear yourself being really efficient you don't want to go back to being inefficient because inefficient Mm. is not a virtue ever so i think i sort of accidentally modeled it for myself in those early writing experiences and then I got a taste for it. And retrospectively, I can say I think what it honors is the reader's intelligence. You know, if you, if if you say, um, uh, you know, how do I get to the bank? And I answer in twenty thousand words. There's a bit of disrespect there. There's something. There's something mm. missing. You know, 
especially if it was if you said how to get to the hospital my my I'm bleeding you know mm-hmm. and someone said oh it's interesting about that hospital you know back in the, the old days it wasn't a hospital well in fact for a long time that building wasn't even you know you're bleeding out so so I think that part of the the idea of compression is let's say it as quickly as we can not necessarily quickly there are things that can be said circumlocutiously whatever right. that word is yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but but efficiently yeah uh, but but to dawdle you know is not ever polite so that was th- this ongoing thing to try to pull the reader into you part of it is when they get the sense that you are not messing around you're not uh cliche for example mm. is a way of disrespecting the reader uh unnecessary or, or unmindful repetition would be another way. And then also it's kind of, I think it's a way, for me, it was a way to make my prose sound different from other people's, you know, mm-hmm. to say, almost apply like a radical Catholic standard of cutting, like uh, the inner known, you know, Mr. Saunders, why are you going on so long, you know? And, mm-hmm. uh, so it became kind of a, a set of moves that, that you can do to um, to be faster. And, and it does have philosophical ramifications, I think, too. And, mm-hmm. and um yeah, because in a certain way, if you uh, yeah, if you say something the way it's always said, that's political, actually. You know, mm-hmm. especially if it contradicts the way things actually are or feel to you, it's political to to. I mean, uh, Orwell wrote about that, you know. Right. So I think there's some element of that, and you know. it is. It's an ethical choice as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because you're you're saying that ultimately, as you say, it's it's sort of a moral question of how what the words you use because words that you use that are someone else's words there's a kind of I mean you know in that essay um, the English language politics in the English language always talks about how that's kind of the language of propaganda right and one of the things I think your stories are really attuned to is the way that language um, can become appropriated by media speak and you have a lot of fun with that of course but it's also dangerous. Yeah. Now, the other thing that I that I like about it is it's also sometimes beautiful. Even in even stupid commercial language can sometimes give us a little thrill, you know. So mm-hmm. that kind of double-edged sword that it is, you know, when the, you know, when the uh, a friend of mine always says when the fascists come back, they're not going to be wearing jackboots. You know, they tried <laughs> that once, so they're gonna, they're going to do they're going to charm you and they're going to be mm-hmm. just like you, you know, and they're going to use seductive phrases and 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 they're going to use hypnos probably you know at some level mm. um but at the same time there, there's something about language you know it's funny in in i don't know if it's true here but in the states a lot of the criticism will often deal with what stories are intending or what they accomplish or what they mean but the this the musicality gets sometimes neglected so to my way of thinking it's it's not only what gets said but it's how it gets said and it's that kind of uh, irreducible thrill that you get when a paragraph is working, you know, when mm. it's over full or when it's somehow super in charge with intelligence. And that that actually is where I would spend most of my time is over on that side of things. Um, so for me, the advertising language, one, I think one of the uh, elements of style is that we do what we can do readily. Mm. So can I um, write like Somerset Mom for 20 pages? No can't do it uh what can i do for 20 pages easy i can imitate television speak i just i just can't i'm a, a person of that generation mm. um so do i did i want to do that not really i'd really like to do somerset mom you know but but you you do the voices that are ready at hand that you can do in any weather mm. and then then maybe the art is in in fine-tuning those so they're not just imitations but they're actually poetic manifestations of the form so and then I think the meaning will, the meaning will come so for me it was a big breakthrough when I you know like Whitman heard America singing like suddenly mm. a, a voices that I had discounted as un, unliterary voices suddenly became literary voices you know people in our neighborhood in Chicago or, or television or when I worked at corporate job there was a lot of really weird shit that got said you know uh, yeah. and at first I thought oh why aren't I living somewhere literary and then you know the smarter party says you are you know yeah. you always are so that was a big that was when the civil war line is when I, suddenly i started hear, picking up on frequencies that i hadn't heard before in, in everyday speech and, and i think there's some glorious swearing in the new one in the yeah. in new collection <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's sort of shakespearean i mean in mm-hmm. the in the first story as and 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 kind of peppered throughout i like as well the the character in home the mother who sort of uses beeping mm-hmm. a lot to sort of sub- substitute because she's got a bad she's on a program yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah but um yeah, so swearing, I guess that's a sort of tactile linguistic thing, but that that can be, that's there's a sort of glorious 
um, register there. It's like wide open. Yeah, I, you know, I got a hate mail the other day from an older woman in the states, and she re she returned the book to me. So I, this is uh, <laughs> obscene and vulgar, and I and, and actually it hurt it hurt me because she was very no. articulate and very and she said I just want you to know that there are many literate readers out here who don't need this. I want to. I, my goal in sending this back to you is to eradicate these stories from my mind. My goodness. Yeah, it's stunk. So I wrote her a big five-page letter in perfect diction with no swearing. You know, kind of. <laughs> I'm sorry. But, <laughs> oh, that's yeah. sweet of you to. I mean, I suppose um, it's uh, you. Yeah, okay. You just can't win them all. I suppose. No, you, know, you can't win them all. <laughs> that's how you know you've marketed it well, and someone got hold of it who hated it. Yeah. <laughs> but you've talked a little bit about how you really wanted in this book to reach as broad a catchment of readers as possible. And I, I wonder how you go about that because, you know, you've talked about how really for you it starts and ends with, with the language on the page and what works for you and what fires you up. So how do you do that without becoming, you know, Foster Wallace had this nice um, formulation of like there's good self-consciousness and there's attack mm -hmm. by psychic Bedouin self-consciousness. <laughs> and like... How do you avoid the psychic Bedouins? You know? Well, you know, honestly, that this book, I, if you'd asked me in December, I said it's just like the other books. And, and I had an aspiration to do, to reach a bigger audience for the next one. Mm. Then when it came out, everyone said, this book seems to be reaching a wider audience. Yeah. Mm. Did you mean to do that? And I kind of would occasionally say, well, you know, in a sense, like we talked about earlier, you get to a certain point in the story and you try to inflect it to say, the, we're, we're saying the positive. That's not the mm. best word. But yeah. um, so that was sort of an, at speed in the moment adjustment but I I really thought uh, when I finished the book I thought I'm, why am I always writing such dark stories is there a way I can open the door wider and I kind of plan to do it on the next book mm -hmm. so maybe maybe in the middle of the publicity I might have adjusted my answer a little bit but if you'd asked me in December I just said yeah this is, an, this is just of a piece with the other ones it's too dark for a, a larger audience oh well I'll try harder next time you know so but then, but again, because partly because the book is a little more of a wide doorway, and partly because of the publicity that happened, mm. it became sort of de facto, of, uh, you know, it got to a, a larger audience. So I, I, I really, I, I try to keep um, that kind of intentionality out of it. Because if you said, you know, if you said, I'm going to be more accessible, what, is it, what does that mean? When, when your credo is, I'm going to always be maximally energetic. Right. You know, though, so, but the one thing I, I do notice is I think we each have, you know, multiple people in us, multiple artists, and just, a, you know, a 6% difference in sloth can lead you to a smaller audience if that's not your natural inclination. So, or to put it another way, um, when I'm on the edge of starting a story or maybe in the middle of some critical point, there, there is a subtle adjustment you can do with your mind that has to do with either, uh, let's see, maybe with avoiding habitual movements that will keep people out, hmm. out of perhaps, say, a certain insecurity, say, right. or a certain fear of being too sentimental or schmaltzy. So that's a tiny little adjustment that's, you know, it manifests as line-to-line -line adjustments, but to say, well, okay, let's not be sentimental, certainly not, but are we falsifying in the direction of false darkness, maybe? Yeah. Maybe. Okay, come over try, and then for two weeks try, you know, try the other thing. That's a way I think of maybe, you know, or or more mechanically. One thing I've done recently, and this is a little crasser, is just to say, these people who are coming out to my readings now and apparently enjoying it that weren't coming out a year ago. Um, what do I need to do to keep them around? And mm -hmm. and again, not in that sort of commercial way, but rather bring in the spirit of bringing forth the best in yourself before you're dead you know mm. if you are there parts of me that are just habitually uh, you kind of alluded to this thing earlier early in the interview this feeling of always swerving dark because mm. that's artistic that's hip you know that's right. edgy right um, maybe is it more artistically courageous to resist that because after all it is habitual it is you know it's so I'm, I don't know. You've talked a little bit about in in other interviews as well about the 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 impact of the death of David Foster Wallace has had on you because you sort of mentioned about habitual darkness and sort of flipping mm -hmm. to that side and maybe that sort of got you thinking about redressing or or, or just inhabiting your own voice a little more yeah. and, and, and unabashedly so. Yeah. Did that have an impact? I think it did. I mean, I, I if, and I've never quite been able to articulate it, but it was something like this when I was with Dave. Um, 
I was always struck by how alike we were. I mean, we talk, we start talking, we sort of have these real simpatico moments. Mm. But, and, but I didn't know him that well. I, we were like professional friends, and when we could, we'd get together, and we'd always kind of jump to cut to the chase and start talking about really interesting things. And I just mm. loved him. He was just a generous, funny, you know, mm. so much fun to be around. Well, but I, I only realized after he had passed away that, he, that he'd had issues with depression and mm. so on before. So then, I think at the time, when I knew him, I would have said, yeah, we're both kind of cut from the same cloth, kind of a little neurotic, a little... Well, after he died, I went, oh, actually, no, we're not. Because I'm not, I've never been, you know, never been clinically depressed, and I've mm. never been, had any impulse to suicide, and uh, I've got a whole, in other words, I've got a whole other suite of psychological things that aren't those, <laughs> you know, yeah. but, but they aren't those, they're different. Yeah. And so then I thought, well, if I have, um, I don't know how to say it, I, if I, whatever my particular suite of psychological attributes gives me access to it's my sacred responsibility to do to address those things right so to do the auto swerve to darkness is not really not really my thing uh or you know like um when i was in high school i was a real obnoxiously happy and rand kind of positive <laughs> thinking you know nascent republican kind of guy uh, so therefore, I have access to that material very unironically. I, I know what that's like. So I think D- Dave, his death kind of encouraged me. Yeah, like you said, to kind of go off onto my island mm. and don't worry. I mean, I love the guy and I love his work, uh, but clearly, uh, that his death was his depression was so powerful that it was unavoidable. And just to kind of go, well, yeah, that's not me. I never, I don't have that experience. So you better go off and occupy your own even more energetically. Again, I, I didn't articulate it well, but there, there was something to it. I don't know, <laughs> but actually, um, it, I think it's really interesting that you said in there that, um, that 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 you wanted instead of that sort of swerve towards darkness. This is there a better self that you can sort mm-hmm. of inhabit? And I think that's actually a theme that runs through some of the stories. And you also said there that of course you don't want to be sentimental like mm. that's there's a obviously a line there as well but i think what's what the stories navigate really successfully i think is capturing those moments of family life particularly mm. that are tender and that are meaningful and they're not necessarily like you know fudgy and sentimental but right. there's this wonderful bit in the Semplica girls when he's talking about um he was he's going to give eva some extra ice cream because he spoke to her a little harshly because right. he's a bit crotchety after work right. and he has this gorgeous memory of how she in the garden she um discovers i think it discovered a dead bird mm, yeah, and yeah. puts it out because um she wants it to see see him family yeah, see him family that was right and my daughter did that for exactly i wondered yeah, if that yeah. was that was one of the few things i've ever done in my post it was strictly but in you know i had um when they were little i kept a diary because mm. and it was very sporadic and irregular but they would say such amazing things and i knew i would forget so i just kept maybe for you know, a couple of years on and off I had it. So when I was writing that, I'd go back and look at it, and it's so, uh, well, it speaks so much to the rusher in at that time, because, you know, it might be, you might get six lines on a given day, so telegraphic, and just, mm. and often these little, you know, um, exclamations of real happiness, like just, you know, grateful sort of stuff. So so that might have been the seeds of, you know, you see that on the page, you wrote it. Mm. It's, it's you're not being ironic, you're being celebratory of these blessings, uh, and then you look over at your story and you go, huh, why isn't any of that in there? You know? right. So, yeah, I mean, that was, I, I don't know. I think if you have um, I, I love, if you have love for, for us, it was, you know, for me, my wife and my kids, if you have that, uh, that's a huge subject. And, and to be able to represent it in its positive manifestations, even as slyly like in, in that story, I think it's, you know, you sort of have to, have to try it and you have to do that. You know? It reminds me, there's, I think Nabokov said it at some point that, happy as a novelist who can slip a love letter into a novel mm, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. it's kind of that idea of of these mm. s- slight things that maybe only you would know that that was I mean it had that feeling to me of something that was experienced and, and meaningful and, and um, yeah I, I think that, you know I think that's why sometimes it, you know one of the writing cliches is well write what you know or write the truth mm. and now that's easier said than done because write the truth doesn't mean write what you think is literally true you it, or write, write what you think would be a good thing to have look true in a book it's mm-hmm. right what's true so in in that case you know to have those positive familial emotions be such a dominant part of my life mm. and then go well that's if that's not true i really don't know i mean after 54 years of life i don't know anything more true than that you know mm. so now the trick is how do you get it in there without looking like a uh 
you know, um, mm. well, I, you know what, actually, I think what it is is, okay, that's true. Mm. But that's true for me right now in these very special circumstances. So I think part of the, the literary act is to say the phenomenon you're experiencing right now is, it just is yours, but it doesn't mean it's universal. So then that Chekhov thing about every happy man should have an unhappy man in his closet mm. with a hammer to remind him by his constant tapping that not everyone is happy. So that was maybe the theme of the first few books, to like to, to go, wow, we're just barely making it here, and mm. look around and go, wow, he's not making it, she's not making it, and kind of go up to the bell tower to call that message out. Mm. But then also later to say, well, I, oh yeah, but actually it's not, you know, b- both states are occurring mm. constantly in every, in every moment. I just want to ask you finally about teaching, and because to me, I think that it's... Um, I think it's fair to say that your um, work is certainly... I mean, I went to college in America and I went to did an MFA program in... Where did you go? Uh, Columbia. Oh, yeah, I've um, heard of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I, uh, I I know very well that, that your style and your stories are very influential there. And I'm not trying to make you blush, but I think that it's it must be curious to, in some ways, be... Um, in a sort of lineage of storytellers that has a, that, you know, in some ways, like you said, you know, you, you've appropriated a sort of speak and language that, that hadn't been appropriated before. And it's also, I think you're someone who's really in touch with, with the sort of the mystery of like doing it mm-hmm. and just doing it sort of intuitively and not really like lowering in a sort of set of principles. Mm-hmm. So how do you find teaching and, and do you think it, does it, is it something that feeds you or is it something that you, um, look forward to getting back to or? yeah I really love it and I, there have been years when they, you know, I've had a year off and I just was restless to get back and I think partly it's because well one you know we get these great students and you kind of fall in love with them you, you know they're, they're, they've entrusted their writing life to you for a few years so then it means that you always have to go back to first principles now well it can also mean that you become a shtickmeister if you're not careful you could become the old guy going shout on tell you know tell more about your mother but in order to not do that, it's the, the only um, solution to that is extremity, the extremity of saying, okay, it's, it's, it's September again, I'm going into workshop, I have to really look inside and see what is my writing like right now, what do I really think is going on right now with my own work, hmm. what, why do we do it, how do we do it, and so, you know, you mentioned mystery, every September I have to say to myself, don't forget that you can't talk about this stuff hmm. with any real exactitude, you, you're going to go in there, you're gonna have some somebody's story in front of you. You've already screwed up. You know that's that's already a flawed process. So what you do is you keep bringing the process back into the process. You know, mm-hmm. almost like a feedback loop. Like how are we doing? Um, in what ways have we misrepresented the story? In which way have we talked about it incorrectly? Yeah. Uh, and then it's, and at the at the eleventh hour, you're always pulling the writer aside to say, don't really. Um, and what I always say is if there's anything that we said today that's really made you happy and stuck to your ribs, or maybe it made you mad, but it, you went, yeah, I already knew that. Go with that. And then there's a second category of things that you you kind of went, eh, maybe. Well, and I always tell them, for these three years, you might want to consider trying some of those because you're in school. But that percentage where you go, no, just just skip that. You know. So no. I, anyway, I, I guess yeah, the way to do it is always interrogate the process you mm-hmm. know, recognize that it's inherently flawed it's an economic construct that people invented in the 50s to get writers paid and students paid uh, but that doesn't mean it's totally worthless mm-hmm. so so as long as you're willing to say um, yeah it's mysterious it's inarticulable it's all these things and bring that idea in then I think it's it's alright mm-hmm. you know and, and also it, it just makes it nice to um, well and selfishly it makes it nice to be around talented young people because you you don't become the person who just dismisses a generation you know right. you're like yeah I, I was, you, these these kids today and then you remember Elaine and go oh she's great <laughs> you know and, and it's something you're, you're good again you know <laughs> do, you, do you feel sort of like paternal in a way to some of this oh very yeah, yeah very yeah. much and I felt paternal towards you know when I was first teaching I was 33 mm. and the students were 27 and I felt paternal because that's a very special Relationship, you know, and I and I had it with Tobias Wolf and Douglas Unger, where you mm. go to them and you say, kind of timidly, I think I might be a writer, and they go, Of course you are, come on, come on, mm. and then they treat you like a writer uh, during that time, and so I I love that. Um, it's almost like a, di- it's not friendship exactly. It's certainly not uh, it's a classic sort of teacher student thing, and it's just a, a mutual trust. 
um, and it, it can uh, it, I think it can benefit them and it can benefit me and it's, it's sort of like it's almost like a, a maybe like sports coaching where you really just want the best for them by any mm-hmm. means necessary so sometimes the technique is ignore them for a while yeah. Sometimes it's be really savage in a line edit. Sometimes it's be incredibly way too generous in a line edit or mm. in a talk. It, it, it's all about what the person needs at that time. So the three years becomes how deeply can I get to know this person artistically so that at the critical moment I can hit the right switch. You know, mm. And they might not even know that you did it. In fact, I've had people come back 10 years later and say, remember when you said that? And I say, yeah, I do remember. You know, so that's, that's a great, great job. Wonderful. I, I've got tons more questions, as I said at the start, but I, I think we have to close there. I did one I, final thought was that um, when you were talking about style, it reminded me of a little anecdote that um, uh, Henry James and uh, Edith Wharton were going going through New York trying to find the directions. They were a bit lost, and they asked this local guy, and Henry James sort of came out with this, I'm like, my dear fellow, I'm sorry to disturb you, but could you mm. possibly, and Edith Wharton like, cut him off and was like, do you know where the hospital is? Yeah. <laughs> <Straight> <laughs> This is sort of like the two different obelisks and the different right, styles. Right, right. Oh, that's nice. I suppose that, uh, to turn that slightly into a last question is, do you read your work? I mean, does that sort of, the vocal patterns to that, I that don't, help? Not, not while I'm working on it. I mean, then there's a, there's a point when you have to go on the road and read it, and then mm. I'll usually practice a little bit. But I, I, I can't do, I can't do as many voices like as I can hear. Mm. So if I started reading aloud, I think I would, it would be a little bit of a constraint. Whereas if I just, it's a sort of a, it's funny it's a hearing you know how you sometimes can uh, read aloud in your head mm-hmm. that, that's different than reading silently in your head it's something like that it's it's um, when I'm generating a voice it's like doing a monologue in my head and somehow I'm, I've got uh, uh, I can get more voices that way than I can if I actually speak it out loud you mm-hmm. know? So, mm-hmm. yeah. thank you so much for joining me it's, it's really been a such pleasure. a pleasure thank you so thank much. you Thanks for listening to the Granter Podcast, available for free download on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on selected British Airways flights. To subscribe to Granter, please do visit our website, granter.com forward slash subscribe.